address to you all who do not get email is that uh, J.C. Norman, who's the brother of Elizabeth Kinsinger and Jane Bridges, did pass away, I believe it was Friday, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, his funeral will be Wednesday at 11. Thanks, boy. Wednesday at 11 at Gasset Funeral Home in Wetumpka. Visitation is going to be an hour prior to the, uh, the services there. So if uh, you want to make note of that, obviously remember... Um, Elizabeth Kinsinger and Jane Bridges and, and their family in your prayers this week as they deal with this. Uh, he was dealing with cancer and undergoing treatment. If y'all remember, I think a week or two ago, we announced about the uh, undergoing treatment. So evidently the, uh, the cancer, cancer took him. So uh, y'all just keep that family in your prayers. Any other announcements or prayer requests this week? All right, I don't see any. Let's start off uh, class with a word of prayer. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for another day you've given us. And God, we are thankful for a time and a period of Bible study we can gather together and open up your word together. Lord, we ask that you be with me especially as I lead our thoughts and as we go through the book of James. And Lord, be with all of us in this class as we consider the thoughts and the, the admonition, the teachings that are there. May they encourage us to be stronger, more dedicated, more spiritually mature Christians in our lives. God, we are especially mindful of Elizabeth Kinsinger and Jane Bridges and their families as they mourn the loss of their brother. And God, we ask that you be with them this week as they deal with the struggles that come from that. Lord, please lift them up as only you can. Give them the peace that passes all understanding as they seek and search after your will above all things. And Lord, we are thankful for the hope that we have of one day being with you in heaven and living an eternal life with you after our travels and troubles on this earth are over. Lord, we are thankful most of all for Jesus who gives us that opportunity to live eternally with you. We're thankful for his blood that was sacrificed on our behalf. And it's through his name that we pray. Amen. We are picking up in, in James chapter 2. If you'll bear with me, I may be a little stiff. Of course, y'all know I, I shift around, but I've got a, got a serious neck issue going on. So... Um, I was driving to Birmingham this last week for a hearing, and I could hardly even check my blind spots. I was having to turn my whole body. If any of y'all ever had that situation, that's a horrible way to travel. But uh, anyways, y'all bear with me as I do move around, and if I grimace, you probably know what it is. So uh, bear with that. But James chapter 2, we're going to be picking back up in last week's lesson that we had, um, dealing with the four different basic doctrines that James really presents to the Christians here as he speaks to them to encourage them to treat people better. And how you treat others is a direct reflection on your beliefs, on the things which you hold dear, and obviously what James tries to reiterate as he uses different allusions and examples here in James chapter 2 are four different main main doctrines that Christians uh, should understand, should embrace, and should be able to be taught uh, because they would impact their lives. And we've already talked about uh, one is the deity of Christ, the second one is the grace of God, the third one would be the word of God, and then finally here you see the judgment of God alluded to in the latter part of this paragraph uh, here in, in our what we're calling uh, Lesson 5, verses uh, 8 through 11, uh, kind of looks at uh, the word of God as we just talked about there. And, and as we ended last week, we talked about the royal law being mentioned, and the royal law being the word of God. Uh, and the royal law mentioned would be to love your neighbor as yourself. And I believe as we concluded last week, we were talking about why it was the royal law. And first of all, it was given by the king being God, being Christ. 
as uh, he gave it. Uh, God gave it in the Old Testament as reiterated by Jesus in the New Testament. And we see multiple allusions and teachings about loving our neighbor as ourself throughout the New Testament. And the implication of loving one another obviously would be indicative of someone who was a follower of God. But it, it was given by the king. It was a, a law that rules all other laws. That's another reason why you could call it the royal law, as James uh, talks about it here. And, and it rules all other laws, as I said last week, because if we follow this one law, I mean, obviously the, the main law would be, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind. As, as Christ said, that's the greatest commandment there. But if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second likened to it being love your neighbor as yourself, everything else falls under that. He's not saying don't do everything else. But what, what Jesus was saying, and then what here James is implying as well, is the fact that when you love God, and then consequently loving each other as yourself, then obviously everything else is going to be there. And I think I made the point to you, if we actually follow this one law, we need nothing else among us here on this earth because it is a relational law that impl- implicates how we treat each other. And that's why James is using it specifically here, not talking about loving God. God loving God and, and following him, obeying him is important, but James is focusing on our relationship with each other here in this section of, of Scripture. If we love each other, nothing else is essential. Nothing else is needed. We wouldn't need the, the criminal law statutes. I would be out of a job if we truly followed this law, if everyone followed loving uh, each other as you love yourself, I I wouldn't need to prosecute anybody. Why? Because there would be no crimes committed against each other. Uh, That's just pure and simple. And that's really the point that James is getting at here. All the law and all the prophets and everything else, as Jesus said, falls under these two commandments. Why? Because they encapsulate everything that the mentality of someone who loves God and loves each other should be doing. Nothing else is going to be essential. Nothing else will have to be spelled out there. It rules everything else. And finally, it's called the, the royal law as we ended last week because obedience of this law, obedience of this rule makes you a king as well. And James tries to reiterate there how important it is for us to keep the law, uh, for us to not falter, not to fail. Verse uh, 11, not to be a transgressor of the law. It's not that we, uh, you know, it's tough to keep the law. But as he says here, if you violate one section, you violated it at all, and it's reality. You know, you can't just say, well, hey, I'm pretty good in all these areas, but this one, yeah, you know, I, I, I violate that one quite frequently. Well, you're a transgressor in the whole law. Uh, it's not just a, a miniscule thing here. He's saying it's, it's all part of it. And if you follow God's commandment to love one another, if you don't show partiality, if you don't uh, go out and, and treat others miserably, and in a way that you wouldn't want to be treated, then you shall become a king. You shall become conquering. You will be someone who is looked to as someone who can conquer and fight against sin, and you, in essence, become a king as well. So that's the word of God. That's where we ended last week. Looking here at the fourth one is going to be the judgment of God. And this is where uh, the very end of this section of Scripture that we began studying last week kind of concludes before moving on to a different area. In verses 12 through 13, it says, of course, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
We can't deny, no Christian can deny the certainty and the importance of the judgment of God. It's mentioned multiple times in scriptures. Now, we may not understand every facet surrounding it. I've heard debates on what leads up to the judgment day, uh, the second coming of Christ. And you can hear a lot of people that may be in dissension as to exactly uh, the exact details. The scripture gives us some insight to it. But obviously, there's a lot left out to wonder. And to be honest with you, it really doesn't matter. When you think about it, we can argue over a lot of futile things, and that's what, in essence, a lot of people end up doing on the judgment of God. Uh, we got in a discussion, I think, it was last week or the week before, uh, about the idea of judgment, and there's a lot of questions. Uh, I think it was at men's lunch one day, and talking, if y'all, y'all need to come to men's lunch now. Uh, I will encourage the men in this congregation. That is probably the, one, the time of the week that I enjoy getting together with the men, because we end up getting in a lot of different discussions, but a lot of it ends up going to a, a biblical uh, type of reflection sometimes on what's going on. And one of the discussions we got into was about the judgment of God. And there's scripture that talk about us, uh, you know, possibly if you go into the, the parable, I don't call it a parable, the story of the rich man and Lazarus and the idea that there is a waiting place, so to speak, that you kind of have waiting and you hear that taught. And then, of course, there's a passage, though, that also talks about the fact that those in Christ are going to rise up from the dead first. And so if we're in this waiting place, how do we rise up from, you know, there's a lot of these questions that honestly I'm not sure you have a full understanding of. Now, I think there's some answers to that. I don't want to get into that. Uh, y'all put that, file that away in the back of your mind for you to study this week, okay? Don't, don't let it distract you this morning, some of those questions. But there's questions about the judgment of God that we're going to have. However, what you cannot question, what should not be questioned, is the fact that it will happen. It will happen. We are told that the judgment will occur. And there's multiple scriptures I've thrown up there and put it by the, uh, the verse there. But, you know, even though we don't agree as to the details of the future events, uh, the certainty of them uh, cannot be denied. Uh, you can't deny the importance of the final judgment. You know, Jesus and, and Paul assured that we're going to be judged for sins. We're going to be judged for the actions that we do or do not do. Or our works will be judged and rewarded. We read in the scripture there, Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to be judged. We cannot avoid that if we truly believe in the inspiration of the word of God. And so as you go on to think about the judgment of God, what does James point out here in the scripture here as we think about uh, what this reflects on us. He's reflecting and talking about the judgment. Well, I think it's good for us to think about this doctrine of the judgment, uh, this teaching of the judgment. What's going to be judged? Well, we need to understand that one thing that will be judged is our words. Our words will be judged. Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 through 37 talks about the things that we say to people, how we say it. Those things are going to come up before God. And we can't avoid it. And so we must be cautious, obviously, how our careless words may be received. We're going to, next week, Lord willing, if I can get through this next lesson, which I doubt I will, we're going to be embarking on James chapter 3, talking about the tongue. And if you look at the title of the lesson for next week, it's the, uh, if you look at it, it's called, uh, hold on, let me find it, um, The World's Smallest But Largest Troublemaker. (laughs) I like that title. Uh, But you think about the tongue and what it can do. Well, our words will be judged. The things that we say, how we say it will be judged. And so we must be cautious and reflect uh, on that. We must understand that as we live our lives, that the judgment of our words is a certainty. Uh, Jesus emphasized caution when we speak to some, and, and he talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 7, and how important our words are. What else? Well, our deeds will also be judged. And you see in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 25, uh, the idea that God remembers 
those actions that we take unless we repent of the sin. God's going to call us to have a reckoning of those things which we have done. Our deeds will be before the throne of God. Now, we can take some assurance. We can take some, I guess, uh, comfort in the fact that if we repent of those sins, uh, God says he remembers them no more. Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 10, 17. But our sins affect our character. They can affect our lives. And unfortunately, if we don't turn from them, if we don't allow those to be forgiven, if we don't repent from them and ask God for the forgiveness, our, our deeds will be judged. Uh, we will be called on the carpet, so to speak, on those things which we have done. And God's not going to let those things pass from us, uh, good and bad. I, I believe judgment also is indicative of the fact that there are going to be some good things that you are called to your attention as well. So in a sense, you know, we usually think of judging being a bad thing. Uh, in my life, in my profession, obviously when we go to the judge, it's not usually a good thing for the person who he's facing the judge on. And, you know, when you go to criminal court... You know, they're facing, you know, penalties. They're facing jail time. They're, you know, they don't know what they're going to get sometimes in the end uh, when you face a judge. However, in some respects, the judging that we may experience hopefully will be good because those good deeds which we have done may be brought to light. And I think you read that as you read God's admonition in Matthew 24, 25, talking about the idea of, of coming before the throne and, and talking and, and God knowing what we have done. What you've done to the least of these, you've also done to me. And there are some that, that it will be reckoned unto them as righteousness. Our deeds will be judged. And also, thirdly, our attitudes will be judged. And I want to point that out because it's, sometimes we can get away with maybe going through the motions on this earth. But in reality, we'll never get away with going through the motions with God. Our attitudes, our mindsets, our mentality, God is going to know those things. James contrasted two different attitudes, as you see here in James chapter 2, as we've discussed here. And, and there is an attitude here of the confronting of the, the person who comes into assembly and doesn't look like you or maybe doesn't act like you. And, and that's a heart issue. And, and in reality, all sin is a heart issue if you get down to the root of it. And when we think about what causes someone to sin, it's usually a heart issue. It is a, an issue of them wanting selfish desires over selflessness. And that's what you see at the root of the problems here is the mentality. The, 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 the brethren that talked to the poor people that came in may have you know, put on some good airs, may have treated them nicely, may have been kind to them. But if their heart wasn't really in it, guess what? God's going to know. And God's going to know our hearts. God's going to know our attitudes. And that's what he assures us is that we are going to experience true judgment with respect to our attitudes. It doesn't mean, you know, when you think about verse 13 here, judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Well, how do you show mercy? Sometimes with actions, but also it becomes a mentality, an attitude of mercy in your life, uh, of showing care and concern over someone who is of a lesser estate. God warns us. He lets us understand. James admonishes us to understand that mercy and judgment are important and our attitudes will be judged in the end. Mercy and justice both come from God. As you think about how it all connects and as it all kind of comes together here in the book, uh, where God finds repentance and faith, he's able to show mercy. Where he finds rebellion and unbelief, he must administer justice. It's, it is the heart of the sinner that determines the treatment that he gives. And ultimately, we see the Lord's parable in Matthew 18 illustrating this truth and, and, and talking about forgiveness and talking about uh, reconciliation and looking down upon the servant who owed so much and, and the idea there of God you know, allowing us to be forgiven 
despite how much we owe, uh, really hits home to us. It's a mentality. It is an attitude. God will dispense it uh, with respect to what we ultimately will get. Uh, the, the judgment of God is ultimately uh, something that we uh, must understand. It is a given. But it's also a doctrine that James uses here, I believe, to admonish and encourage the Christians here in the first century to try and act accordingly. Treat others with mercy, as he kind of reiterates here in verse 13 of chapter 2. Show others mercy so you will be shown mercy as well. Alluding to, I think, that parable, but really more than anything, reaching out to to these brethren and trying to encourage them to have a a like-mindedness of Christ. You know, Christ didn't even think of himself enough to stay up in heaven, but instead gave up that form of being equal with God and came to the earth. That kind of a mimicry should be among Christians' mentality. That's the way we should be thinking uh, is like Christ. And that's what James is is focusing there here. uh, What we think about in James chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, think about the judgment of God and how it impacts and how it will reveal how we should treat others. And it should impact us just like the deity of Christ should impact how we treat others, just like the grace of God should impact how we treat others, just like the word of God should impact how we treat others. The judgment of God should also impact how we treat others because it should remind us daily that there will be an accountability. It may be a negative thought process. I don't really care what kind of thought process it is, but it should be a reminder to us to walk that narrow path and to do the things that God wants us to do in our lives. Any comments or questions before we move on to lesson six? Hope you have lesson six handouts. If you don't, I've got some extras up here if anybody wants to get those. But uh, lesson six, dealing with false faith. And I, I like this section of scripture. If you look in chapter 12, verses uh, 14 through 26, which is the remainder of chapter two, it's a passage of scripture that, to be honest with you, I think we have studied a good bit in the Lord's church. Uh, and at least here in Dalrada, I've heard it preached on several times. I've heard it discussed multiple times. And, and it's one of those, those topics that in some respects is, is ultra important. Uh, this section of scripture really hits home with respect to some of our denominational friends and family. And I'll get to that in just a moment as you think about the context and the impact of what verses 12, uh, 14 through 26 really mean to the believers. But uh, one quote that I, I came across is that this is an important discussion For if we are wrong in this matter, we jeopardize our eternal salvation. And I I couldn't say that any better, so I threw it up there on the screen. And really, if you think about faith and works, which is what we're getting into, uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, the the combination, the relationship, the connection between faith and works is really centralized and has become even more centralized in a lot of religious discussions because of the, uh, the way that some try to discount what is done by the believer, uh, by those that are faithful. And so when you see this passage of Scripture, this section of Scripture, as I've already said, causes uh, some consternation among uh, denominations. It's one of those things where some people look at it. Martin Luther called the epistle of James uh, the straw epistle, meaning it really didn't, it was very weak. And, And if you read his writings, this really boils down to this section of Scripture is where Martin Luther had problems. And the problems arise because he had a hard time reconciling this with other, uh, I think, ingrained beliefs uh, when you look at his writings and look at what he taught and what he said. Now, Martin Luther, of course, was part of the uh, what we would call uh, Reformation movement. 
Uh, if you all have ever gone back in church history and kind of looked at those things. But Martin Luther, of course, is the one who nailed the, the uh, 95 Theses on the door in Germany. He, he, you know, I wish Terry was here. He'd probably give me a good, he could do a good uh, history. I'm not going to do the historical stuff. I don't do it justice. But, uh, you know, you think about the history of Martin Luther. He also helped lay the groundwork for a lot of what we call Calvinism. Uh, and John Calvin was another one of those restorers of the church or attempted restorers, I would say, of the church and the restoration movement where they were trying to go back against the Catholicism and the Catholic teachings and doctrines that had been, uh, had, had really distorted and uh, become the apostate church. And they tried to change things. Well, they, they, this, they got to this. And faith and works really causes a lot of problems because they were trying to get away from the whole idea that you earn yourself into heaven. And it's really all about faith. And it's been contorted even more today as being more an experiential type of faith. I think even than Calvin and, and uh, Luther even believed in. Uh, but when you look at their arguments and look at it, you see the core, you see the root of a lot of problems. Right here, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Give us the ammunition, to be honest with you, to shoot down and to, to cause those arguments to really fall by the wayside. It's very interesting. One of the authors that I've been using as the outline of this class, is, is Calvinistic. So when you get into this section, I don't agree with probably about half the stuff. I've got it redlined through my book uh, of things that I don't agree with. Uh, and you look at it, and I pulled it from another book, so I've combined, I told Monica, this lesson was probably harder to put together than any because you're trying to pull from multiple sources. I like the outline in this one, but I don't like the substance, so I want to go over here to the substance and pull it in there. If you ever put together lessons, you kind of know what I'm saying. But the substance, the details of considering faith and works becomes messy. Especially whenever you go out and talk to those in the denominational world who say it doesn't matter what you do, that if you experience God, if you experience His Spirit, you are saved. It's all about faith. Well, the problem is when you look at the book of James, uh, there is a, uh, an obvious, uh, I think, refutation of that. Here in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. That's why when you start reading some of the, the writings by these individuals, it really doesn't seem to mush. I mean, mesh. It's mush. It doesn't mesh with what the Scripture says. Uh, because they try to start pulling things from here or pulling things from there. They go to Paul, which is one reason why I want to throw up there. Paul, in his epistle to the Romans, stresses the fact that we are not saved uh, on the basis of our works. Now, I want to kind of throw that word. I think that's very important, that word. It's not the basis of our works, Romans uh, he kind of talks about that in Romans 4, 1 through 5. But he never discounts the idea and the necessity of obedience. And it's, it's reiterated in that same book, the idea that we have a faith, uh, obedience of faith. There, that phrase is used multiple times in the book of Romans. So, he, you know, Calvinists and those of denominational uh, sight, uh, they, they, they pull from scriptures like that to try and argue, saying, oh, it's just faith. We can't be saved on the things that we do. So therefore, baptism is something we do. Therefore, we are not saved by baptism. Do you understand? That's where the logic goes, for those of you who may not understand that. That's why baptism is not essential to denominational brethren. Because they say it's a work. It's something that we do. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And that last phrase, I agree 100% with. There's nothing that I can do to save myself. There's nothing I can do. And even when you go back and look at Ephesians chapter 2 and the idea of grace, we're saved by grace through faith. It's one of those verses usually thrown out at you whenever you start talking about the necessity of baptism. It, it, it is odd to me that they start arguing that we're saved only by faith, but then there's nowhere that says that in the Scriptures. 
it's always coupled with something else. And in fact, if you pair Ephesians chapter 2 with our discussions today, what you're going to see is the defining and saving faith that James talks about is the same faith that goes along with Ephesians chapter 2, and it's an active, obedient faith. It's something that causes action to occur. It doesn't mean that we're saved by itself, but it's coupled and it, it encourages, it brings about actions to obey the commandments of God. And so therefore, because we have that saving faith that goes toward obedience, we have those obedient actions, and that in essence can be shown and seen as being something that's good, and, and James really kind of underscores that. Brother George. No doubt. And 100% correct. We cannot devise our own scheme of salvation. We, we don't have a scheme of redemption that we can come up with, right, Wayne? I mean, we, we can't just devise however we want to, uh, which is very interesting because that's exactly what denominations do. You see this denomination that, that says, and uh, part of their principles of faith, that, hey, all you got to do is say a little prayer and ask Jesus to come into your heart, and therefore you are a saved person. Well, interestingly enough, where is that found in the Bible? Nowhere. And so they have devised the scheme themselves to come apart that. What about the idea of, of having an emotional or a spiritual experience that you can go and say, hey, I experienced this spiritual new birth, so I therefore am giving my life to Christ now. Is that found anywhere in here? No, it's not. That example is nowhere found. And so when you think about what a saving faith is versus what a false faith is, it's important to understand the components of what it is. And that's what James really tells us here. In the book of James here, we see three different things, three different types of faith that we see here in the scriptures uh, in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. You know, he stresses the importance of faith, no doubt. But he also wants us to know that faith that saves is faith that obeys. It's not faith alone that saves, but it's faith that leads us to obedience. A faithful obedience brings about salvation. And ultimately, the word used in most Bibles, by the way, is justification. Justification, salvation, you might as well put an equal sign between the two when it comes to spiritual matters because that's what the Bible's talking about. Justification is bringing back that relationship where it should be in your minds. Think about that. That's why when we are justified to God, when we are justified through Christ, whatever phrase you want to use with the word justified, it is a reestablishment of that relationship as we should have had with Christ from the beginning. Or the relationship that we should have had with God from the beginning. Think about in the Garden of Eden. It's going back to that type of a relationship where you have this relationship between God and man that has been rekindled, reestablished, and reinvigorated. Why? Because You'll see the saving faith brings about those things. The saving faith brings about obedience, which that's what God says we shall do, right? If we love him, we're going to what? Keep his commandments. I mean, it's important. You can't just discount the idea of doing something just because you don't like the idea of you thinking, well, I can't earn my way into heaven. I'm not saying you can earn your way. We will, none of us, I'll tell you, none of us in this room will ever earn our ways to heaven. None of us will earn our salvation. None of us will earn the forgiveness of our sins. We can work till we're, our fingers are, are, are all the way to the bone, and we're not going to do it. We can work till we don't have any more sleep. We can work till we're so fatigued that we just fall down because we're working for the Lord. And guess what? It won't make a hell of a beans difference because you have not worked yourself into salvation. 
The core question is going to be, are you doing what God wants you to do? And there, in essence, begs the idea that we've got to do something. We can't just sit idly by. And that's where I, I get into a lot of, well, I have a lot of problems with the, the once saved, always saved mentality, which a lot of denominations have. The idea that, hey, I can just one day decide I'm a Christian, and then it doesn't matter how I live the rest of my life. You know, I'm good, is what that mentality and that philosophy is. There's nowhere in Scripture that, 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 that follows that. And what we see in the book of James here in verses 14 through 26, I believe outlines what I would say are three different types of faith. And I want to challenge you to kind of look at these real quickly. Uh, we're not going to finish this week, obviously. But three different types of faith that we see here in the Scriptures here. First of all, you see a dead faith. Uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Uh, that phrase, by the way, of uh, faith being dead is used at least three times in this short paragraph or section of Scripture. Uh, but as you see, we'll, we'll talk about dead faith being the first and primary uh, type of faith here used in this uh, secondary. Uh, the second one used, demonic faith, verses 18 through 19, the idea of demons believing and having faith. And ultimately what I want to end in this class as being is the third type. And I want to say just by the verbiage you see that this is the faith we all need to have is dynamic faith. Nobody wants to have dead faith. Nobody wants to have demonic faith, right? I mean, who wants to be a demon? I mean, um, we want to have dynamic faith. And that's what uh, I believe we can look at the closing verses of this section of Scripture and see how James kind of tells us, what do we have to do? What is dynamic faith? What does it mean to have a living faith, an active faith? Well, James, I think, gives us some good points to consider and think about there. Look with me. A dead faith. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. I want to read that. I know we haven't read the, the passages. I want to read them as we went along this, this morning. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren... If someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothing and is in need of daily food, and one of them says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you don't give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now, this section of Scripture to me... Uh, really argues a lot of different things. And there's a lot of points that are made here. Uh, one thing is this type of faith, being a dead faith, substitutes words for deeds. Again, it substitutes words for deeds. Have you ever known someone who seems to be all talk? I mean, I have. I've known several in my life. What, you know, they say they talk a good game. They, know, they seem to know what they're talking about. They even, they even act like they're going to do something, Right? And then in the end, what happens? Well, they, they constantly disappoint you. They don't follow through. They don't do what they say they're going to do. And, and in fact, sometimes even their lives don't uh, show those things which they talk about. They, they talk a good game, but they never seem to have the follow through. Y'all know somebody like that? Uh, surely you've, you've probably experienced someone like that. Well, that's, that's kind of what kind of faith you're talking about here. Is there's a good talk, there's a good, you know, discussion, there's, there's good things. In fact, James doesn't necessarily even question the fact that this person has faith. He questions more the implementation of it. He questions whether or not uh, this faith is only expressed in talking points versus living points in life. And I think sometimes we fall, ourselves, maybe we even fall into that, that scheme sometimes with respect to the things we believe or the things that, that are around us. But you see here is he uses an illustration, an example of someone coming into you who is in need. And in fact, if you think about it, uh, the context here is, of course, he's talking to Christians. 
And he says, hey, if a brother or a sister comes in, he's not talking about familial blood relationship, by the way. He's talking about spiritual relationship. If a brother or sister in Christ come in and say, hey, you know, I'm in need. I'm naked and I don't have food. Now, obviously, they come in naked. I mean, to me, it's a little hyperbolic here of an illustration. They're not going to come in naked to you. They're not going to come in, you know, they may come in very hungry without food. But he's using an illustration here to say, okay, this is the experience that someone has. And they, they come in, and just in your minds, think about someone that you know and you love in the Lord's church. And they come to you, and they don't have clothes on. Or maybe they have minimal clothes. Let's not just go naked. I don't want you to visualize people naked. So just underwear. Let's say underwear. Now they come to you. They don't have clothing, you know. Let's say their house burned down. They have nothing. And they come before you and say, ah, I got nothing. Reminds me of the trip we went on. Monica's laughing now because she knows what I'm saying. We went on a trip one time and uh, went up to, I think it was Burnt. No, it was uh, Spring Hill when I saw my sister. And we, we actually stayed in a hotel. And I get up there. And have y'all ever left something at home? You know, when you go on a trip, I have. I did it very too often. I got up there. I had left all my toiletries, everything. Didn't have toothbrush, didn't have uh, shampoo, didn't have anything to comb my hair. I, of course, I had more hair, I think, at that point. But and it had nothing. And so I, I got to Monica, and I was like, getting ready for bed. You know, here we are, you know, getting ready to get in the bed. The girls are sharing a room with us. I mean, it's chaos already. You know, two kids staying in the room with you. Never a good move when you go on a trip. Uh, you know, I look over, I, I, I start looking through. I said, have you seen my overnight bag? Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it anyway. I keep looking. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I left it on the sink at home. She's like, well, what do you have? I said, I got nothing. Nothing. So I called down to the front desk and tried to get whatever I can, you know, from them at the hotel and you know, got enough to make do. But Monica still reminds me of that. I, I just, it was so humorous because I just looked at it and said, I got nothing. You know, you imagine someone coming to you really having nothing, though. I'm not just talking about toiletries. I'm talking about no food, no clothing. And imagine you looking at that person and say, hey, go in peace, go in peace. You know, you'll, you'll be okay. And you just turn and walk away. Now, Wayne, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time believing I could do that to a brother. I mean, you know, I, I don't think that's very ever possible that I would, I would do that to a brother in Christ. But that's the example James uses as an illustration here. That they turn to them and say, go in peace, be warm and be filled. Now, to me, this seems like some existential kind of response. You know, somebody who seems to be a little bit too much uh, meditating, maybe, or yoga that day or something. You know, that's, that's the kind of response in my mind. I'm thinking, are you, are you serious? Are you kidding me? I mean, that's really what I want to say when I tell my kids, are you, are you kidding me? Because that makes no sense to me. But that's the example that we see here. You got words, but you got nothing as a Christian for them. You don't give them anything. You don't provide them any food, any clothing. You don't give them what's necessary for their body is what verse 16 says. And James says, how can this happen? How can this happen? And just like this situation, if you have, say you have faith in life, if you say that you believe in something, if you say you've got these convictions, because that's what faith is, by the way. It's belief in action. It's belief that becomes willful. If you've got faith in your life, but you do nothing... What James says there is, guess what, guys? That that faith is dead. It is dead. It's useless. There's no good. You might as well not even have faith. 
You know, it's kind of interesting to me to, to see the, the comparison here and see the idea that the dead faith is something that Christians can have. Because a lot of times we say, oh, you know, hey, every, every Christian's got faith. But in essence, what James is questioning is not necessarily the beginning of salvation, by the way. And this whole section of Scripture is not really talking about the beginning. It's really talking about the living, by the way, if you think about it. He's talking to Christians already, okay? So he's not talking to those who have not been converted. He is questioning whether or not they have true faith, even as Christians. Have they turned their backs on true faith? You know, they had it to begin with when they had the conviction to become a Christian. What about now? Is their faith turned dead because of their inaction in life? Well, James says, I think that there's a very distinct possibility that that's what has happened to these Christians here. But obviously what we see is dead faith is uh, symbolized and epitomized by a substitute of words for deeds. Secondly, dead faith is a type of faith that is useless. We've already talked about this a moment ago, but Christians have an obligation to help others. We see it. Benevolent aspect of Christians is, is tantamount to turning our back on God. If we, if we don't help those who are needed or are needy, those that are uh, orphans and widows. I think about Josh and his amazing work that he, he tries to do and focusing on those who are fatherless. You know, you think about that aspect of our lives. Those that don't really have anybody at all. Christians are called to reach out to them. Christians are called to reach out and do good unto all men. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10. Especially those of the household of faith. We've got an obligation, not only a moral obligation, I believe, but a spiritual obligation as Christians to reach out to those who are in need. Now, if we have dead faith, guess what? It's useless. It's useless. We're not doing the things that God wants us to do. We're not taking action. And in fact, the words, as I already said, have kind of replaced that action that we're supposed to be taking as Christians. It is useless faith. It's good for nothing. In fact, some of your versions may even say, instead of that it's dead, it may say your face is useless because it's a synonymous word they're using in some translations. It's of no use to God. It's of no use to, to others. You're not helping them, are you? And it's of no use to you. Dead faith, this type of faith, is also only an intellectual experience. There are some people out there who like the intellectual experience. They, they like to sit around and debate. They like to think about all the, the what-ifs, ands, and buts of, of Christian living. And, and it really becomes an intellectual experience to them of being a Christian. It reminds me of going, you know, when, when Jesus would go into the temples and you have all these people just kind of sit around talking about philosophies. You know, those kind of mentalities. Or when Paul would probably go to the synagogues and, and the other areas whenever he would go into a city, those meeting places. People were just going around debating things. If you have a dead faith, that's really, in, in essence, all that you have in life because you're not taking any action. It becomes a purely intellectual experience. You may know the doctrines, but you have never submitted yourself to the doctrines and to God. You may know the right words, but you don't back up those words with works and with actions in life. It becomes a purely intellectual experience. And if all you are is sitting around and thinking and philosophizing and debating with others about faith and debating about spiritual things, you may find yourself here categorized as someone who has dead faith. You may think it's active because it's active in your imagination and your mind, but it's not active when it comes to action for God. 
We like deep thinkers. We like those that, that challenge. We like those that, that think about things. But however, we've got to understand that, that true saving biblical faith is much more than just thinking about it. It's doing something about it in life. Dead faith is uh, a counterfeit faith. It lulls a Christian into some false security and false confidence of eternal life. It's a faith that none of us want to have. It's a faith that, that James implores the Christians here not to embrace, to, to get, get away from it because it's dead. They don't want anything to do with this kind of faith. And neither should we. You know, I prosecuted counterfeit, well, items before. I haven't really dealt with counterfeit currency, although I, I've, the feds prosecute that. So I, I've, I've had some cases that come across my desk where I've seen counterfeit bills. I've dealt with counterfeit merchandise before, believe it or not. Counterfeit DVDs, shoes, believe it or not. I've dealt with prosecuting individuals for selling counterfeit items. And the, the, the problem with counterfeit items is this. When you look at a counterfeit item, usually you cannot distinguish it from the real thing. Counterfeiters do a good job trying to hide the fact that they've copied someone else's design or, or copied someone else's plans. And guess what? Satan does a good job too, guys. He has a good job of counterfeiting our faith and making us think our faith is an active faith when in essence it's really just a living faith inside of our minds. It has no action and in essence it is dead. And just like James implores the first century Christians here, we need to understand that faith, if it has no works, is dead because it's by itself. The second type of faith that we see in the scriptures here in verses 18 through 19 is what I like to categorize as demonic faith. Look real quickly in verses 18 and 19 with me before the bell rings. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. When you think about this, no one I don't think ever would want to be classified as being like a demon, would we? I mean, demons obviously are, are cast away from God. You read in scriptures, we talk about demons, evil spirits, whatever categorized or category or description you want to use there for those of the spiritual realm that are against God. They're, they're never with God. They can't change their stripes. They don't change their, their state. Uh, they, they, don't, they can't go back. They can't repent. They've already chosen their side, so to speak, in the battle against God. Nobody wants to be like demons. And I think as you think of James talking to the first century people, can you imagine if this was written to you? If this was written to you? Hey, you, you believe in one God and you do well. Demons also believe and they shudder. It's kind of like a little bit of a slap, isn't it? It's, it's an ironic statement made without directly going against them and saying, you are a demon. That's in essence what James is saying, is that if all you do is believe, if all you do is have this faith that there is a God, that there is a one God out there, then hey, you're no better than demons. And so I think, in fact, here James points out some features and some failures of demonic faith so that he can kind of, of, of argue and talk about the fact that we should not have this kind of faith in life. You think about it, first the dead faith, it's intellectual. It's all about the mind. In fact, we talked about words replace deeds. So it's all about this kind of a mentality of, of thinking and not doing. Here is kind of the next step in that progression, in fact. Demons have faith and they want, they shudder. 
But James says that's, that's not enough. Demons aren't saved. Do you think any of us would argue that demons are saved before Christ? They're at the day of judgment. Whenever there are, are decisions made and judgments rendered in our lives, is he going to say, hey, demons, hey, good job. Go to heaven. You know, well done, my good and faithful servants. You know, that's not what God's going to say to demons. In fact, he's going to chain them into hell is what the scriptures talk about. That's not the fate we want. I would assume that's not the faith that the first century church wanted. So even them and their Jewish beliefs, and you've got to understand, their Jewish faith and their Jewish beliefs, even before they become Christians, were so well ingrained into the, the fact that there is one God, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Those kind of words were ingrained not necessarily just in their minds, but even on their bodies. Remember the phylacteries that we talk about the priests wearing? They actually had those things rolled up and and those words written and inscribed, and they carried it around with them. And so he's talking to those kind of people who had no doubt, no problem believing in God. But yet that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And in fact, you see here the two failures, I think, of demonic faith that we see here is, first of all, Demons show us that demonic faith, in their demonic faith, that belief is not enough. If anyone were to argue to you that it's enough to believe that there is a God, that there's, that's enough, we're, we're united as Christians. I'm going to put it in quotation marks. You see it in this world around us today. This, this accepting, this tolerant society that we're surrounding ourselves in. It's okay. We all believe there's one God. We're good. Go back. The demons also believe and shudder. And we'll pick up here next week.